0: So this is Revelation twenty one to 10 The Millennial Reign of Jesus on Earth, Part 1. Well, Lord, we thank you for our new day. Thank you for our new opportunity to get into your Word, and we pray that you'll speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your Word. Give us hope in that we know what is going to happen in the future. And as times get worse and worse, as the countries fall apart and this world gets worse and worse, we know that it's getting closer and closer to the rapture. Lord, our excitement is building and we continue to do good because that's who we are. It's what you put us here for, to be a light in this dark world. To help us to be a light in this dark world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Revelation 21 to 10 The Millennial Reign of Jesus on Earth, Part 1. And there's a lot in this section. There's a whole lot of scriptures that talk about this. So I'm just going to read a couple of Old Testament scriptures to start because I want to point out to you that the tribulation and the millennial reign, the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ on Earth, are not just things in the New Testament, but they're predicted over and over again and described in great detail in the Old Testament. So, for starters, when we talk about the day of the Lord, it is talking about a future time of terrible judgment on the whole world. So I'm just going to read one Old Testament passage that talks about this, and then after that I'm going to link it to Revelation, the Tribulation, and then after that I'm going to read a passage from the Old Testament that talks about the millennial reign and how god is going to make that a period of peace and righteousness where he rules on the earth so here we go the day of the lord it's a future time of trouble or terrible judgment on the world so isaiah 13 verses 6 to 13 it says scream in terror for the day of the lord has arrived the time for the almighty to destroy Every arm is paralyzed with fear. Every heart melts and people are terrified. Pangs of anguish grip them like those of a woman in labor. They look helplessly at one another. Their faces aflame with fear. For see, the day of the Lord is coming. The terrible day of his fury and fierce anger. The land will be made desolate and all the sinners destroyed with it. The heavens will be black above them. The stars will give no light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will provide no light. I, the Lord, will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sin. I will crush the arrogance of the proud and humble the pride of the mighty. I will make people scarcer than gold, more rare than the fine gold of Ophir. But I will shake the heavens. The earth will move from its place. When the Lord of heaven's armies displays his wrath, in the day of his fierce anger. So, the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord's fierce anger. The time of judgment is coming. The book of Revelation gives a lot of detail concerning this future time of judgment. And I'm just going to read a, a short section from Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. And this is talking about the sixth seal judgment. And just look for the similarities between the description of this time of Judgment is punishing the world for its evil and the wicked for their sin. So, Revelation six twelve to 17 I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree, shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person, all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to survive? So, the wrath of who? The wrath of the Lamb. Watch out for that nasty lamb, yeah? No, we're just talking about the Lamb of God. So, notice the similarities. The sun is darkened, worldwide earthquake, all people dreadfully afraid. Now, the second main prophecy, or important prophecy, or time period, spoken of repeatedly in the Old Testament, is the millennial reign, or the 1,000-year reign of Christ, the time when Jesus has returned to earth and reigns over all the earth from Jerusalem. Now, we're going to read in a little while, Revelation chapter 20, and six times it says for 1,000 years. So we know that this time of Jesus reigning on earth will last for 1,000 years. So now we're going to read some of the Old Testament descriptions of this. So the first one is Hosea chapter 2, verse 18. It says, On that day I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so that they will not harm you. I will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so you can live unafraid in peace and safety. Wow. How'd you like that? Live in a world where there is no dangerous animal, no poisonous spiders, no vicious lions, (laughs) and there's no war. I will remove all weapons of war from the land. We would live in peace and safety. So now we start to get a picture of what it's going to be like in this millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So now I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 to 10, and this starts with a description of the battle of Armageddon this is Jesus judging the world or finishing his judgment of the world when he comes back to the earth with us so verses 4 and 5 talk about the battle of Armageddon and verse 6 on it talks about the millennial reign so Isaiah 11:4 to 10 he will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited the earth will shake at the force of his word And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. (laughs) Remember last week we talked about the second coming? And the two-edged sword coming from the mouth, Jesus' mouth, destroying the wicked. He speaks and they die. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Verse 6, now we come to the section that talks about the millennial reign. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. In that day the heir to David's throne, Jesus, will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, Jesus, and the land where he lives Israel will be a glorious place. So this gives us a lot of insight about the millennial reign. A lot of this is not described in Revelation. The book of Revelation gives additional details, but we get most of this from just the Old Testament. So it's going to be a place where the wolf, the lion, the lamb will lay down together. A baby can play with baby snakes, you know, little snakes, and not get hurt. The earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. And Jesus will be there. The heir to David's throne, Jesus, will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, Jesus. So Jesus is ruling over all the earth. So again, we have two periods of time described in the Old Testament. One, a time of judgment, the seven-year tribulation. And a time of peace, when Jesus himself will rule and reign on the earth the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth or the physical kingdom of God on earth. So, today we have the kingdom of God. Where is it? It's in our hearts. Jesus lives inside of us. But in the millennial reign, he will live on the earth physically. Now, I've got the chart on the board up there. So, some questions. Just to revise what happens you got the church age and then you got the tribulation the seven year tribulation and then you got the 1000 year millennial reign of Christ and then you got the final battle when satan is released and then the great white throne judgment and then eternity with the new heavens and the new earth so if you're a believer at the time of the rapture where do you go you go up to heaven and where do you meet jesus In the air. That's it, yeah. So, if all the believers have ascended to heaven, been taken up, caught up to heaven, and spend the next seven years or so with Jesus in heaven, where do all the unbelievers go? They stay on the earth, okay? So, in this first judgment of separation, the rapture, where the believers are caught up and removed from the earth to be with Jesus in heaven the unbelievers are left on the earth and they go into the tribulation where God sends a series of judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. Then, as we've learnt in the past, there's three ways that God shares the gospel. What are the three ways that God shares the gospel? or the three methods that God uses to share the gospel. One is the 144,000 Jewish evangelists the other is the two witnesses and the other is the angels that fly around sharing the everlasting gospel and other things so basically there will be a massive amount of people in the tribulation period who will choose to put their faith in Jesus most of them will be killed but some of them will survive to the end of the tribulation both Jew and Gentile at the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes back. We come back with him in our glorified bodies. We get our glorified bodies when we go up at the rapture. Now, for the believers who survive the tribulation by Jew and Gentile, they are judged. Where do they go? Do they leave the earth or do they stay on the earth? Remember what comes next? It's the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, yeah? So who goes into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ? Only the believers. It's only the righteous that go into the millennial reign. The unbelievers go to Hades, to hell. So at the rapture, it's the believers who leave the earth, but they go to heaven and then they come back to earth seven years time or so. But at the sheep and goat judgment at the judgment at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back, it's the opposite. The unbelievers leave the earth, but they don't go somewhere nice. They go to Hades, they go to hell, awaiting their final judgment at the great white throne judgment. And the believers go into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And they have kids. And their kids will have a free choice to believe or not believe. Now, what we're going to learn as we read in Revelation chapter 20 is that Satan is bound at the start of a thousand years and released at the end. And when he's released at the end, it's an opportunity for people to choose. This is really important. People will have a choice to follow Jesus or rebel against Jesus. There's always a choice. Jesus always gives people a free will, a choice, whether or not they'll follow him. And unfortunately, there will be unbelievers, as numerous as the sand on the seashore, which will choose to rebel and join Satan in his futile final war against God. We'll read that Satan and his demons and the unbelievers will surround the holy city of Jerusalem. But God will send fire down and destroy them. And that's it. It's all over and done. Then we go and witness the great white throne judgment when all the unbelievers, this is the second resurrection, all the unbelievers are judged and sent to the lake of fire. Yes. And then God creates a new heavens and new earth and we live there with him forever in our glorified, resurrected bodies. So now, Let's read Revelation chapter 20, the whole chapter, and get the context of this. It's an amazing passage. It gives a broad outline of this time in in the future. So Revelation 20, verses 1 to 15. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. That's the final battle we'll get to in a minute. Verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. And for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we're going to talk about the resurrections next week. Not this week. Today we're going to talk about Satan and his being chained up and then released and why there's going to be so many people who will not believe. But anyway, continuing on in Revelation, verse 7. Now when the thousand years, again, thousand years, have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. In other words, a great multitude. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. So they go to the nation of Israel and surround Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Remember, they were thrown there at the end of the tribulation. They've been there for a thousand years all by themselves, but now they have the company of Satan himself. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now we go to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. So this is at the end of the thousand years now, after that final war. This is the last thing that happens before eternity, before the new heavens and new earth. So then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Has got to be the saddest verse in the whole Bible. If you are not born again, if you are not saved, if you have not put faith in God for the salvation of your soul, for the forgiveness of your sins, then you will be condemned for your sins. Your name will not be in the book of life, and you will stand before God, you'll be found guilty of breaking his commandments, and you receive eternal condemnation, eternal separation from God. It's the second death. The first death is a physical death where our physical heart stops beating. But the second death refers to a spiritual death where we are permanently separated from God for eternity and are in torment in the lake of fire. Now, again, notice six times it says 1,000 years. This is a literal 1,000 years. So some people say, oh, it's just allegory. No, he says, when the 1,000 years have expired, this is a real thousand-year reign, rule and reign of Jesus Christ. So we're going to focus on verses 1 to 3, so let's read them again. This talks about Satan being bound for 1,000 years and then released. So verses 1 to 3, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was a devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So there's a lot going on here. Things will be very different in the millennium and I'm going to focus on that today. But first of all, This bottomless pit, what's this? Well, the abyssos. It's the abyss. Other translations actually translate this as the abyss. It's a place of torment reserved for the demons. And you can see that in Luke 8.31 where the demons say, please do not send us into the abyss. So we're going to go more into that next week. About Sheol and Hades and Tartarus and the abyss. Today we're focusing on what it's going to be like on the earth. So why is Satan locked up during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ? Well, simple. Jesus will be the king of the world, not Satan. And righteousness will fill the earth. It will be Jesus' kingdom, not Satan's anymore. Satan will no longer be the prince of the power of the air, as we've read before in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Think about it. If Satan was still here, then he would still be actively deceiving people with his lies because his evil world system, what the Bible calls a cosmos, the world, would still be in place. However, when Jesus rules the world, it will have a perfect environment and be characterized by righteousness. This means no more war, no more mass deception, no more human government. Jesus will rule the entire world from Jerusalem, from the temple there. Now, here's an application. I've called it Know Your Enemy. As a result of Satan being locked up, it should be much easier for believers in the millennium to live godly lives. Why? Well... In today's world, we have a war on three fronts. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So, the world. If we read 1 John 5.19, it says, We know that we are children of God, and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. We're talking about the world system, the cosmos, the whole world system, a well-organized system which lies in the power or under the power of the evil one. So Satan is the one who's set and is in charge of the world system in which we live. That's why the Bible tells us not to be a part of the world system. We are in the world system, but we're not to be a part of this world system, so don't get caught up in it. And this is something that constantly tears away at us. We have all these influences. All these temptations that come from the world, the materialism, the lust, the physical gratification, sex, all those kind of things. It's fighting against our faith and against our commitment to Christ. It's a battlefront that we must be aware of and live in dependence on the Holy Spirit who lives in every one of us who was born again and gives us victory over those temptations. The second enemy we have, so the first one was the world. The second one is Satan. So the world and now Satan. Satan has a well-organized army of fallen angels. There are ranks and order just like an army that we have in our country. So we fight on this front as well. Satan and his demons are a formidable foe, but what does 1 John 4, 3-4 to tell us? Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. So i read that to you. 1 John chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if anyone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over these people. Because the Spirit who lives in you is greater than the Spirit who lives in the world. So, question. Who is the Spirit who lives in us? The Holy Spirit. God himself. God Almighty. Who is the Spirit who lives in the world? Satan and his minions. Yeah? So now we come to the third battlefront we've covered very quickly. The world, the world system, ruled by Satan. We've covered Satan himself, who likes to tempt us directly with his demons. And now we come to the flesh, the third battlefront. The flesh refers to a sin nature that we are all born with. We are all born with a nature that is in opposition to God. And when we are born again, God puts a new nature inside of us. A new spiritual nature that has the kind of life that God has. It's linked to God. We're alive in Christ. And this new nature will always want to follow God. But, <laughs> this is a catch, he doesn't take away the old nature. It's still there. The new nature and the old nature are side by side. This causes us to sometimes wonder if we are really saved, if we really love God. Because we wonder, why do I keep on doing the wrong thing if I love God? So I want to ask another question now, because many people have asked this question. I know many people doubt their salvation at times. I just want to encourage you by going through this. The bottom line is this, okay? Here's some good advice that I have received in the past. It goes like this. If you weren't saved, then you wouldn't be concerned about it. If you weren't saved, then you wouldn't be concerned about your salvation. Make sense? Do you sense a civil war going on inside of you? Well, I do. Sometimes the war is so strong inside of me that I feel like I'm going to explode. Not Literally. (laughs) But there is often such a sense of frustration that I'm not living the life God wants me to live. I'm not experiencing the blessings, nor being the blessing that I should be to others. I know what is right, but just so often don't seem to be able to do it. Now, this is the very evidence that I'm a Christian. And you say, hang on a sec, that doesn't make sense. You're saying your struggle shows you're a Christian? Well, yeah. Why? Because, Before I was saved, before I became a Christian, I never had this battle. I just did what I wanted to do. Now, yes, I did feel guilty at times, but it was relatively easy to put aside my conscience and just keep on doing what I wanted to do. In fact, after a while, it didn't even feel wrong anymore. But now, as a Christian, I have two natures fighting each other and the war is on. The only way to win this battle is not to try to fight this old nature yourself. If you do, you've already lost. You can't fight the old nature with the old nature. It doesn't make sense, does it? I need to always remember that God leaves the responsibility to say no to sin with me, but then I need to pray and depend on God. Lord, please give me victory, the ability to do what I know is right. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of me that I have victory over sin. And you can read that in Romans 8. I won't go through it now. But some other promises that God gives us are these. God promises that with the temptation, he will always give us a way out. 1 Corinthians 10.13 The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So we all go through the same kind of temptations. There's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon would say. No new sin, no new temptation. We all go through the same thing. We feel, experience the same temptations, the same desires, the same cravings. But God promises that he will not allow the temptation to be more than we can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Also, I love this promise in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. to It says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvellous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. So this is an amazing verse and one I always come back to. By his divine power, God has given us. That's past tense. Do you understand that? Past tense. God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him. So the moment we come to know Jesus, what have we received? Everything we need to live a godly life. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life this is a great and precious promise he has enabled us by his holy spirit living in us to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires our sinful nature desires and the verse 5 it finishes off it says in view of all this make every effort to respond to god's promises God gives us his promises, but they're like checks. They need to be cashed. We need to put them into practice. We need to have faith and apply God's promises. There's no point having a check for a million dollars if you never cash it. It's the same with not claiming and using God's promises. Now, how does this apply in the church? Well, Satan knows every area of weakness that we have. And often in churches, this is an idea that Hal Lindsey had, which I kind of think is right. Those strong in one area will form a clique, and look down their noses at those who are weak in that area. And the same will happen in a different area. You'll have people strong in a different area who will look down their noses at these other people because they're not strong in what they're strong in. But God tells us that our weak points are no worse than anybody else's and your strong points are no better than anybody else's. We are all sinners, and the things that we need to trust the Lord in, we all need to grow in. We all have to learn. It's a process. What's a process called? Sanctification. That's it, yeah. So there's this battle between the old nature and the new nature. And the very fact that you see the battle going on is proof positive that you've been born again. Why? Because you have a new nature. If you didn't have the battle, it would mean that you don't have a new nature. And if you don't have a new nature, you're not born again. Make sense? So, again, it seems a bit backwards to say that your struggle proves you're born again, but that's what the Bible says. And we're going to read a bit about this about how to overcome our sin nature, our flesh our carnality in Romans seven fourteen to 25 Here, Paul is telling us what it was like for him to try and obey God using his own strength. He soon learned that he couldn't live a life that pleased God at his own strength and that he had to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Personally, I think every believer has to learn this lesson the hard way to some extent. Jesus calls it the process of dying to self in Luke 9.23. It means to cease to depend on ourselves and learn to trust and rely on God instead. Some call it the wilderness experience, reflecting or mirroring the time in the desert, the wilderness where the Israelites learned to trust God before they entered the promised land. And for me in my life, how sweet it was when I, finally surrendered and allowed myself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Just like the children of Israel experienced amazing divine victories over the nations in the promised land. You know, Jericho, Ai, and other cities. Many other cities. All because of Joshua, who was a picture of Jesus, his leadership. They've submitted to him. They've followed him. And as long as they did that, they won. It's the same with us. You realize that? We have a leader. His name is Jesus. Joshua in the Hebrew. Jesus in the Greek. We have someone to follow. But will we follow him? Will we trust him? So I'm going to read Romans seven fourteen to 25 from the New Living Translation talking about this battle that we have with our sinful nature the battle that goes on between the new nature the spirit and the old nature my flesh my sinful nature so Romans 7 to 25 so the trouble is not with the law for it is spiritual and good the trouble is with me for I am all too human a slave to sin I don't really understand myself For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows me that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing the wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I'll read that again, verse 17. So I, my new nature, is not the one doing the wrong. It is sin living in me, my old nature, that does it. Verse 18, and I know that nothing good lives in me, that is my sinful nature. Nothing, and this is something that's hard for us to grasp a hold of. I was born completely depraved, completely with nothing that seeks after God, nothing that loves God. Yes, that's right. So verse 18 again, and I know that nothing good, nothing good lives in me, that is my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. (laughs) Sound familiar? But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. Verse 21. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Notice that. The sinful nature is still within him. Verse 24. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Notice that. Who will free me? Yeah. Verse 25. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind I really want to obey God's law but because of my sinful nature I'm a slave to sin. The battle is on. Once you become a Christian the battle is on. It will last until the day you die. Now a mature Christian must recognize or has recognized the absolute depravity or exceeding sinfulness of his sinful nature and therefore is prepared to fight it and recognize it for what it is but an immature christian is blind to his true nature remember our heart is deceptive and desperately wicked the immature christian doesn't understand that his Human nature is completely sinful and they think themselves to be a good or spiritual person and therefore they don't need God's help. They can do it themselves. But that's just not the case. Now, a couple of quick highlights from here, like verse 20. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. Now, David Guzik, asks, is Paul denying his responsibility as a sinner? No. He recognises that as he sins, he acts against his nature as a new man in Christ Jesus. A Christian must own up to his sin, yet realise that the impulse to sin does not come from who we really are in Christ Jesus. The new man. The eternal man. So a quote from Kenneth Woost. To be saved from sin, a man must at the same time own and disown it. It is this practical paradox which is reflected in this verse. (laughs) A true saint may say it in a moment of passion, but a sinner had better not make it a principle. What he's saying there is that when we do sin, we say, you know what, that wasn't my new nature, that was an old nature. I was sinning against my new nature. But we don't want to be saying, "Oh, it's okay for me to sin because I've got a sinful nature. It's not really me, he's doing it, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) No, we can't do that. We're still responsible for our decisions. And verse 24 says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, when Paul describes this body of death, some commentators see a reference to ancient kings who tormented their prisoners by shackling or tying onto them, decomposing corpses. So back to back. Can you imagine that? Just picture that, right? You have a dead body tied to your back. Their back against your back. And as time goes on, that stench gets worse and worse and worse. You have a dead body tied to you. Can you imagine how awful that would be? Well, guess what? The Christian has a dead body tied to him and to her. I have a dead body tied to me. It's my sinful nature and it stinks. And so does yours. Paul longed to be free from the wretched body of death clinging to him. Verse 25. So then, with the mind the new nature. I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He acknowledges the state of struggle, but thanks God for the victory in Jesus. Paul doesn't pretend that looking to Jesus takes away the struggle. Jesus works through us, not instead of us in the battle against sin. And a quote from David Guzik, the glorious truth remains. There is victory in Jesus. Jesus didn't come and die just to give us more or better rules, but to live out his victory through those who believe. The message of the gospel is that there is victory over sin, hate, death, and all evil, as we surrender our lives to Jesus and let him live out victory through us. End of quote. And you can think of galatians 2 20. what's that say i my old self has been crucified with christ and the life i now live i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me so in summary my old nature can't do anything right my sinful nature cannot do anything right the way i am born and I'm born out of my mother's belly. Or even before that, I have a sinful nature. I'm born with it. Romans says, there are none who seek God. On the other hand, my new nature cannot do anything wrong. So our old nature is described in Romans 7 as being exceedingly sinful. Now it doesn't say exceedingly bad or exceedingly wrong or exceedingly evil, but sinful. Why? Because there is nothing worse, nothing more evil, bad, wicked, or wrong than sin. Sin is disgusting. It stinks. It's that dead corpse tied to your back. Okay, Your sin nature. Part of maturing as a Christian is recognizing and admitting the total depravity, the utter wretchedness, the complete inability to please God or to do anything of eternal value, anything by faith, using any effort or strength originating from our sinful human nature, our flesh. On the other hand, our new nature is described as delighting in the law of God, Romans 7.22. As my sinful nature does not want to, nor can it do anything that pleases God, Romans eight seven. so my new nature, created in the image of God, does not want to, nor can it do anything that doesn't please God. It's completely opposite. And we all look forward to the day when we get our resurrection bodies and the old man, the flesh, the sinful nature will be once and for all destroyed, his influence over us completely removed. And we see that in Romans 8.23. And just imagine, finally, after all those years, you're getting that corpse, that rotting, stinking corpse untied from you and you're free from that corpse tied to your back. We'll need a good bath, that's right. <laughs> and that's what Jesus will do with a glorified body. So we come back to our original question. Why should it be easier for believers in the millennium to trust God and obey him than it is now? Why? Well, you should know. Because in the millennium, two of the three enemies of our relationship with God will be gone. Firstly, Satan, and I assume his fellow foreign angels will be locked up and therefore no longer able to affect us. Secondly, because Satan and his hordes, his minions, are all locked up for the duration of the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ on earth, they will not be able to deceive the nations anymore. This cosmos, this evil world system, will no longer exist. Its king is in prison, and a new king is on the throne of the world. One who rules the world in perfect righteousness and with a rod of iron. Again, the world that is set up at this time is set up by Jesus. Satan is bound, and therefore he cannot deceive anybody. For us today, though, we still have the flesh, the world, and Satan. Now, how do we fight it? Prayer, the Word of God, fellowship, and evangelism. So, come back to our question, why is it easier for those in the millennium to follow Jesus? Well, they only have to fight on one front, and that is their old sin nature, the flesh. They still have the corpse tied to their back. All right? I'm not talking about us who have our resurrected bodies, glorified bodies. I'm talking about the tribulation saints, the ones who become saved or believe in God during the tribulation who then go on to live in the millennial reign. Now, Some people have asked this question, so let's answer it. How do we know that there will be mortals, that is, people with natural or mortal bodies, who are able to reproduce in the millennial reign? Well, first we need to understand that the church, the Old Testament believers and the tribulation martyrs will all have resurrection bodies, meaning that we'll all be like the angels who neither marry or are given in marriage. So in other words, we can't have kids. So Matthew 22.30, For when the dead rise, that is, get their resurrection bodies, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. So angels and us resurrected people, the tribulation saints who died, the martyrs, the Old Testament saints and the church, We'll be like the angels in heaven. We will not be having kids. So, who is going to populate the earth? Who is going to be able to procreate? Well, it's the tribulation survivors. The believers. They will go through the sheep and goat judgment and the Jewish judgment. The believers will stay on the earth and the unbelievers will be sent off the earth, taken from the earth they would go to Hades, awaiting their final judgment at the great white throne. So we have mortal people, people who have survived the tribulation, going into the thousand-year rule and reign in a mortal human body. They still have their sinful nature attached to them. They will have kids, and their children will have to choose for themselves whether or not to believe in Jesus unto repentance, to choose to repent and believe and accept his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Now, another question people ask is, will all mortal people in the millennium be believers? Well, at the start they have to be, because anyone who's not a believer at the sheep and goat judgment, is cast into Hades. They're taken away, taken off the earth. And so, at the start, everyone's a believer, but they have kids, and their own kids will have to make their own choice. And unfortunately, Revelation 20, as we just read before, it says that a number of people who follow Satan, at the end, when he's released, at the end of the thousand years, will be like the sand on the seashore, and there's lots of sand on the seashore. So there's gonna be lots of people choose not to accept God's gift of forgiveness. So let's read that together. It's Revelation twenty, seven to ten. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison, the abyss. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog, in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as sand along the seashore. And I saw them as I went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, there are also prophecies in the Old Testament that foretell of massive population growth in the nation of Israel and also rebellion amongst the nations. And look at those later. That's more evidence that there will be mortals living in the millennial reign and that some of those will not believe. Now, application. I am my own worst enemy. (laughs) What the millennium shows us, what we've discovered so far, is that our human nature, our sinful nature is really our worst enemy. I am my own worst enemy. Despite a perfect environment, a perfect earth, a righteous world system, and the absence of any demonic influence, a vast multitude of people will still choose to rebel against God. Now. This is important, so listen carefully. What does this show? It shows that man is not a product of his environment. Do you get that? Man, people are not the product of their environment. This is a popular psychology theory. That all a man's problems are due to his environment. That he's basically a good creature, a good person. But his environment makes him do the wrong thing. It's not true. I sin because I am by nature a sinner. It's not my environment that causes me to sin. The environment just shows who I am. It gives me opportunities to sin. But I sin because I'm a sinner first and foremost. Consider that the first sin occurred in a perfect environment with two perfect people in a perfect relationship with God. It couldn't get any better but they still chose to go against God. So just think about this. A person is born in the millennial reign. A person is born into a near-perfect world which has a perfect physical environment. He has first-hand knowledge not only of the existence of God but also of the presence of God and is protected from any serious effects of sin. There is no false religion to be deceived by. Every person will have a safe and at least moral upbringing. It will be enforced. No more rape or incest or domestic violence. Jesus will be ruling and reigning with an iron rod. Those things will not be allowed. They also have the gospel clearly presented to them. All nations will come year by year to the temple in Jerusalem where they will observe a lamb slain, animals slain, and they will understand why. The reason is there is no forgiveness of their sins without the shedding of blood, Jesus' blood. Yet despite all this, many during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ will still choose to reject God's gift of forgiveness. Pride, which was Satan's Achilles heel, is also humanity's greatest weakness. Why? Well, to be saved, a person must first humble themselves and then confess and repent of their sin. But no one likes admitting that they are sinners. No one likes confessing. No one likes owning up. So, man is not a product of his environment. He is a product of his own choices. (laughs) He is a product of his nature. Okay, We are born with a sin nature. So when counseling, we need to consider that effective counsel will always point people to the root of their problem, their sin nature. The problem is always inside, not outside. We can't blame others or circumstances for who we are today. Instead, we need to take responsibility for who we are and seek the Lord's help to overcome our sinful nature. Now, I was told this story, and I think it's a good one for now to help us understand, bring this together there was a Christian homeschooling mum who was very protective of her son. She would not allow him to watch any bad TV, go to any bad movies, or read any bad books, or hang out with any bad friends. Now as his son became a teenager, he started to watch pornography. She went to the pastor. He said, what have I done wrong? You know what the pastor said? Sin doesn't come from without, but from within. Your son was born a sinner. It's his nature to sin. It's not the environment, it's his nature. He's doing what his sin nature is urging him to do. You can't stop someone from sinning simply by controlling their environment. And that's really important. That's exactly what the Millennium shows. You can't stop someone from sinning simply by controlling their environment. You would think that in a world controlled and ruled by Jesus, many, many people would come to know him and trust him as our Lord and Savior. And I'm sure many will, but there also will be many who won't. It's their sinful nature that stops them. It's pride. So, now we have two more questions to answer before we finish. Why must Satan be released at the end of the thousand years? This puzzles many people. Why would Satan be released at the end of the thousand years? Well, simple answer. People must be given a choice. Even in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve a choice to love him or not. To follow and believe and trust in Satan, or follow and believe and trust in God. For there to be true love, there must be a choice to love. Otherwise, we are nothing more than robots. The same will be true in the millennium. God will give all people free choice, just like he does now. God desires us to willingly surrender our hearts to him, to submit our will to him, to willingly. Make him the king of our lives. When we do this, we come back into a relationship with God and begin to understand the unspeakable joy of being in fellowship with the loving and holy God. Romans ten thirteen says, "For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." Notice it says, "Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." Okay. So when Satan is released he will bring out into the open what God sees in the heart. How Lindsay said that, okay? When Satan is released, he will bring out into the open what God sees in the heart. The unbelievers, I remember in this world, everyone's going to look like an unbeliever because it's really hard to act anything different because Jesus is ruling around the rod of iron, right? You've got a lot of godly influence but when satan is released he will bring out into the open what god sees in the heart the unbelievers will immediately follow him satan and rebel against jesus satan being released at the end of the millennium is really the only chance that the unbelievers will have to openly rebel against god against jesus and his righteous and iron rod style reign on earth at the end of the millennium, everyone will have to choose a side. Everyone will have to choose a side. There will be no neutral ground. It's always been this way. Worship God or worship Satan. Nothing changes. Now, just want to finish with this last question. What is the most important choice for every living person? Mark one fourteen to 14-15. This is Jesus talking. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice it's the gospel of the kingdom of God. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of light, God's kingdom, and the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. Colossians to 14 says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So, conveyed from the power of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in the kingdom of light. The saints in the light. Notice what Jesus says. There are two things I must do to be saved. Repent and believe. So repentance first. What does repent mean? I must willingly submit to Christ's lordship over my life by repenting. Repenting means to turn away from my sin and turn to God. Trusting that God's will for my life is best. Believing that even the hard times that God allows me to go through are good for me in the light of eternity, secondly, I must believe and trust that Christ's substitutionary and atoning sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for my sins, in other words, Jesus died in my place and paid the full price the full penalty for all my sins, and not just my sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, it is not enough just to know this, but I must also apply my faith. It's like putting on a parachute. I actually need to take the step of asking God to forgive me of my sins. I need to apply the promise found in 1 John 1, 8-9, which says, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So, notice that the whole thing here if we claim we have no sin, if we claim we have not sinned, all right, we are fooling ourselves. We are calling God a liar. We're not living in truth. And his word has no place in our hearts. That's pride. That's pride. We are fooling ourselves. We are calling God a liar. His word has no place in our hearts. This is the root of the problem. This is why the people in the millennium will choose to follow Satan. They will not confess their sins. They will not admit to themselves being wretched, poor, pitiful, blind sinners who need to be saved. Verse 9, it says in 1 John 1, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So only if I repent and truly believe will I then be saved. Only then will I be in the presence of God forevermore. Also, I will have been given a new nature that loves God and this enables me to live for God. So just close on these verses in 2nd Peter. We've already read it. I want to read it again just to finish. 2nd Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5. By his divine power God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. So what has God given us? Everything we need. And what for? To live a godly life. When did we receive it? Well, it says, we have received, past tense, we have received all of this by coming to know him. So the moment we are born again, we have everything we need to live a godly life. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvellous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In view of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. The first promise we have to take hold of is that 1 John one nine, and trust God for salvation. Confess our sins. Trust him. Repent. So, a person must respond by faith to God's promise of salvation and then continue responding to God's promise that we will share in his divine nature by living a life of continual repentance. So, what is your choice? Light or darkness? Heaven or hell? Forever with Jesus or forever with Satan? Father, Lord, this is serious. This is life and death. Lord, the millennium has showed us that our environment does not affect our inner desires. Our environment just makes our choices clear. It gives us opportunity to choose based on our inner desires. Lord, we have a sinful nature which is in rebellion against you. And if we live by that sinful nature, we will die, we will perish. We will remain separated from you when we die. And we'll be judged and condemned for all the bad things we've done, all the laws that we've broken, all the Ten Commandments we've broken, every lie we've told, every thing we've stolen, every lustful thought, every hateful thought. It's all going to count against us. And we'll suffer for all that, for eternity in the lake of fire. But if we confess those sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from all wickedness. And so when we stand before you as a believer, we are pure and holy because we have been cleaned, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Father, I pray that we will take this seriously, Lord. The millennium has shown us that it's not an that we can blame for the way we are it's our sin nature our sin nature is to blame i am who i am because of who i am not because of my environment lord help us to take responsibility for who we are and to trust in your promises to overcome our sinful nature first to salvation and second for sanctification to continue to grow we pray these things in jesus name amen